Hi everyone, this is Chris Campbell, and welcome back to the Food Institute Podcast. Today, we welcome Jennifer Bartashis, Senior Equity Research Analyst in the Consumer Staples and Retail Group at Bloomberg Intelligence, and we'll be taking a look at the plant-based IPO market. But first, I'd like to thank everyone who's been listening to the Food Institute Podcast over the last year or so, and we ask that you share this episode with your friends and family. In addition to the Food Institute website, we're now available on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. So please subscribe, like, and share as this really extends our reach. So thank you again. And before we get started today, I'd like to thank our sponsor, and that's Mesero Investment Banking. Mesero focuses exclusively on middle market transactions and serves both public and private companies in merger and acquisition advisory, debt advisory, restructuring and special situations, fairness and solvency opinions, Board of Directors Advisory, and Special Committee Representation. Their practice combines rich industry knowledge and longstanding relationships with an entrepreneurial desire to build tailored solutions designed to deliver measurable results. So for more information, please visit www.mesero.com slash capabilities slash investment dash banking. And we'll include a link to that website in the description of this video if you want to click there. So with that all said, I'll introduce Jennifer and ask her how she's doing today. So welcome to the show, Jennifer. How are you doing? I'm great, Chris. Thank you so much for having me on today. We're really excited to have you here today, Jennifer. And I think it would really benefit our audience if you gave them a little bit more information about yourself. So could you share a little background on yourself and your career so they have a better idea of where you're coming from? I'm Jennifer Bartashis. I'm a senior equity analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. I've worked at Bloomberg for 25 years, so I've been in the financial markets for a very long time. Um, I've been in our research group for the last 12 years where I've really focused in on packaged food companies as well as retail companies, um, specifically big box stores, grocery stores, and discount stores. And so altogether, you know, this has given me just a wonderful perspective of the growth of different industries. Um, and, it, and it's been a lot of fun to be able to engage with so many different people about a wide variety of topics. Thanks for sharing, Jennifer. And before we get too deep in the weeds on all the companies we're going to talk about today. I was hoping that you could also share your top level view of what the plant-based market is looking like today. Well, I guess I start with kind of the 10,000 foot view, which is that the plant-based alternatives industry has never been stronger. Um, you know, we've seen total sales across the industry just grow at a pace that just far eclipses other parts of the food industry. And although that's probably going to moderate a little bit this year, there's still really a very long runway for growth ahead of us. And that just makes it so appealing for everybody to get in on a growth sector. And so we're seeing a lot more entrants. We're seeing incubators arrive that will help you know, new concepts grow quickly. So it's a very exciting time for the plant-based um, industry overall. And we see just that growth is going to continue. So I understand that things are really hot in the plant-based IPO market. But when I saw the news that Impossible Foods was eyeing a potential $10 billion IPO, it really struck me as a massive figure. And do you think a company can realistically reach this figure and, you know, maybe give a little bit of thinking on that in, in your answer there? Yeah. So, you know, when, when people look at Impossible Foods and a $10 billion IPO, it is a big number. Um, and, and a $10 billion IPO for, for a valuation for Impossible would be significantly higher than the $4 billion the company was valued at just back in August. Um, and that's after they received a $200 million funding round. And that, that's a pretty significant jump in less than a year. Um, as of early May, um, Beyond Markets Cap is around $8 billion. So just for, for comparison's sake, and it has higher retail distribution and it has inked some very impressive fast food partnerships in the last few months, like McDonald's um, and Yum Brands with Taco Bell. So Impossible's sales 
are certainly growing and they you know it's and it's accelerated its distribution at retail stores but it would really need a a very strong multiple to bring it to that 10 billion dollar valuation um yeah but that said the general enthusiasm around plant-based food sales growth last year and the investor interest in high growth food companies could push an ipo valuation up towards that level um, especially in the secondary market um, you know, Beyond Meat really set a strong precedent with its IPO, and even though its stock has taken some large swings, um, it really has it's had a cumulative uh, total return of over 400%. So it sets up this expectation, and it makes it a tempting alternative for other companies to try to follow suit. Um, and for any investor that missed out on that, you know, uh, Beyond Meat initial ramp up in valuation. You know, they're probably anxiously awaiting an opportunity to try to tap into this growth as well. And, and the one thing that makes it unique about the companies we're talking about today um, is that there are celebrity investors involved. And so you start to layer in a whole different level of um, influencer type attitude that you see normally in social media or you see in, in other industries um, that we may now see coming with regards to stock valuations. Um, and so it's it's a very fascinating dynamic that we have when we're looking at these potential IPOs. And I agree with that. I think there's definitely a little FOMO going on for people that may have missed out on Beyond Meat. And the celebrity aspect as well kind of makes these a little bit more attractive maybe than a typical investment opportunity. But do you really think that $10 billion is a reasonable valuation right now? Do you think it's a little high, a little low? I know that we're looking at Beyond Meat with that $8 billion you know, as a, as a comparable right now, but I'm just wondering what you think as far as, you know, is it a reasonable valuation in the current day? Yeah, well, so, well, there's no, there's no public sales data available for Impossible um, right now. If you assume that Impossible has about $200 million in sales on an annual basis, which would include food service as well as international sales and retail, um, and assume that it was able to double those sales in 2021, you know, if you apply a, a, a price to sales multiple of, of 6.5 times, which is what Beyond Meat had around its IPO, that translates to 2.6 billion. Um, and in, even if you took a multiple of just over 14 times, which is where Beyond Meat's forward multiple sits today, that comes to 6 billion. So that's still a long way for investor demand to drive up the price to get it to that $10 billion valuation right after an IPO. Um, you know, to come out of the gate at 10 billion, it would require um, an unheard of multiple um, to, to, to really to really debut at that you know that strong. But what we're you know what we anticipate is that it will have something probably it would have something probably similar to Beyond Me, um, and that you would see some of that fast um, growth acceleration um, right in its first day of trading that we've seen with some of these other emerging stocks. Yeah, speaking about Beyond, if I did my research correctly, I think that they jumped from about 1.5 billion to 3.8 billion on their first day of trading. So I'm thinking maybe people are looking at that and saying, you know, maybe Impossible doesn't get to 10 billion, but you know, perhaps they're able to really increase value that way on the first day of trading. But it still just kind of strikes me as odd, you know, that just within two years that plant base has become so popular that we're talking about that there might be a six billion dollar difference between Beyond Meat and Impossible's IPO, and just the fact that's even on the table to me. I don't want to say it strikes me as odd, but it's definitely something that caught my eye when I was uh, putting the research together for this episode. So I was just wondering if you have any thoughts about that giant jump within two years and kind of the evolution of the marketplace for plant-based. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a great question, and it's really fascinating because 
you know, Beyond Meat, most people didn't really know a lot about the company when they did their IPO. Um, and it's just so different today because Impossible Meat has a strong brand recognition. Um, people know it from their Burger King partnerships and from other, other restaurants where they've, they've seen it advertised. And so it does change the dynamic. So even though you know, it's been two years, um, a lot has happened in those two years. Um, now, you know, that said, as I, as I was talking about before, you know, the ability to, to hit a very high multi, you know, to hit a very high valuation right out of the gate may be overly optimistic. Um, but at the same time, there are you know, different market circumstances and different market demands that really didn't exist uh, when I when when um, Beyond Meat had its debut. Um, you know, people have you know changed a lot, especially in the pandemic. They've been cooking at home a lot more. Um, now, when they see the brands in their local store, there's kind of this instant level of familiarity, um, and all of that then gets con you know, considered when you start talking about market share and market share gains, and that is you know where you start being able to project out sales growth you know numbers, um, and so all of those things come together where just the the willingness of investors to look at a a company that has probably no profit. <laughs> But has you know a, a couple hundred million dollars in sales um, might be worth more than you would have expected. It's really fascinating. It really is, and I think it's something you know the food industry. I don't want to say has stagnated for a long time, but to see so many different types of products entering the market, uh, especially during you know COVID nineteen, where consumers I think started changing what they thought about they wanted to put into their bodies, really, you know, and starting to look for healthier for you products, etc. It's really interesting to see a company like Impossible really being on the verge of even just having this conversation in the first place. It's it's, it's amazing. It's really true, and and if you think the other thing is that. You know, Beyond Meat and Impossible both um, have listened to criticisms that have been floated out there about the the relative nutritional value of their you know of their products, and they keep making new iterations of their product. So again, I think something that differentiates these companies to a degree is that there's a continual iteration of the product and the product quality, and then the advertising support behind those iterations um, that keep it in the presence of the average consumer's minds. And if you contrast that with what have, you know, products have been on the market a long time, um, say you're talking about something from Kellogg with Morningstar Farms, or you're talking about Boca Burger, um, they may have had packaging changes and there may have been some formulation changes, but they've gone largely unnoticed um, with your average consumer because um, there's just not that awareness there. Um, and so they, they, these companies that we're talking about today really do have kind of that unique visibility that makes them different than some of the existing packaged food companies that are out there that are also participating in this space and are also growing sales in this space, um, but may not necessarily be getting as much credit for that um, in their respective valuations. It's definitely interesting because it's almost like these companies, Impossible and Beyond specifically, are not just making plant-based products for vegetarians or vegans. They're making it for the general consumer where a lot of those other companies really seem focused on that. And perhaps that's part of the reason why you can get these valuations because it's not just for such a small subset of the general consumer base. So very, very interesting. Exactly. And, and, and they would argue that their products are not just for vegetarians or vegans either, but they've, they've kind of already been set in that, that consumer mindset and labeled that way. Um, and so that, that's a main differentiator. So I'd like to switch gears a little bit and go from plant-based meat into plant-based dairy, because we also noted uh, Oatly recently filed this F1. So now we're looking at another company that could potentially be seeking a $10 billion valuation. 
So I guess basically the same question I had about Impossible. Is this something that's possible for Oatly in the uh, the current market stage? In its current market stage, you know, I think what's interesting about Oatly is that they've been making great strides with regards to um, sales penetration in the U.S. market, which is smaller than its home European markets, uh, where it has an overwhelming leading market share um, in, in most of the major markets it's in. And although the company's really expanding its product assortment into yogurt and ice cream, the one thing about Oatly is that it is still pretty much a one-trick pony with the overwhelming majority of its sales coming from oat milk. Um, you know, the, the F1 that they filed, you know, showed that they have a, a little over $400 million in sales in 2020. Um, that was double what they had in 2019. Um, so, and again, if you, if you assume those sales could double again in 2021, it's, it's still well below a billion dollars in sales on an annual basis. Um, but again, this is a, this is a company where there's been a cultivated culture of environmental, you know, messaging behind it. They've done a, an amazing job with social media and, and getting consumer backing behind their story. Um, and so, again, that plays a that plays a big role in how people perceive the company, whether it's right or wrong. That's that's where the perception is based. Um, so, you know, our scenario analysis really suggests that if, if sales double and you applied that same kind of six point five uh, type multiple, um, which is what we where Beyond Meat was when it IPO, you, you're talking about a market value of about five point four billion. Um, so Oatly's annual sales are a bit higher than Beyond Meat at this juncture in their development. It's got some momentum behind it, uh, behind its distribution. Um, so, you know, ultimately, you know, it could get up to that eight billion dollar mark. Um, you know, in, in you know, if it does IPO and, and is it received well. Um, but there there is some other there are some other dynamics there that that come into play that are unique to the plant based dairy market. So one of the things I've seen in research I've reviewed here at the Food Institute is that you know we have an analog with uh, almond milk and other nut based milks for plant based dairy before Oatly came around, and from what I've seen, you know it, at least at the retail level, it seems to kind of patter out around ten percent of the total market, and they're able to gain that steam. So I guess I'm wondering, you know, with that in mind, when it comes to investing, do you feel there's more risk for the plant-based dairy sector versus plant-based meat? I mean, in my opinion, it seems that plant-based meat has more traction behind it. It seems like there's more consumer interest in it. But I'm just kind of wondering what you think as far as that goes. And, you know, if you had to decide to pick between one of the two, which one do you think is more of a, you know, safer bet going forward when you're looking at these kind of investments? So plant-based dairy is a much, much more mature market than meat alternatives. As, as you said, products have been around a long time now, starting with soy milk um, and continuing all the way through now oatmeal. Um, it does mean that the potential overall growth rates are going to be smaller. Um, and if you take away the fact that they grew 20% last year, because it was sort of an anomaly, growth rates have been in the low to mid single digits on an annual basis for several years in terms of just sales. Um, part of the issue with with plant-based dairy is that private label penetration is really prevalent. Um, almost every big retailer has their own version of all these different plant-based milk alternatives, including oat milk, um, by the way. Um, so there are, there are little pockets within plant-based dairy that are seeing stronger growth, but they're a lot smaller. So if you think about cheese or you think about egg replacements um, or yogurt, um, there's, there's still growth there and it's growth that shouldn't be ignored. But overall, when you think about dairy as a broad category, the, the growth rate is not nearly as strong, but it's also much, much bigger. Now, with regards from, a, from an investor perspective, you know, it really comes down to what an investor is looking for. 
Um, you know, so, you know, if, if you're, if you're looking at something that will, you know, maybe be more of a steady eddy performer, you know, then things that are in the plant-based dairy um, may provide that to you, um, may be a little less volatile, may have a little less risk associated with them um, than some of the meat alternatives, which have had some, some wild swings, um, you know, with regards to where their stock prices are or go or how they react to news. So, you know, whether one's better than the other, I can't really say. It just really depends on what your goal is when you're looking at investing in one of these stocks. So we have a third company we want to talk about today, and it's not a traditional plant-based company, but it's something, you know, a company that I'm sure all of our listeners are very familiar with, and that would be Chobani. And over the last year or so, they yeah. really seem to have been making a push into this plant-based space after making their fame on the Greek yogurt products and all the other associated dairy products. So I'm wondering what you kind of think of Chobani as they start looking at an IPO, but also start entering into this plant-based market. What do you see in them? Yeah, so with with Chobani, it's an interesting choice because, um, especially maybe for more traditional retailer, uh, re- more traditional investors, um, because it's it's got a huge market leading, uh, it's got a huge leading market share in yogurt, and it dominates other brands like YoPlay. So there's a certain stability and predictability to the company's sales and profits that come with that. And now that it's expanding more into plant based, it offers a component of its portfolio that is growth oriented. Um, so it, it's sort of a nice blend. Um, but when I look at it, you know, I think that it's it's actually more similar to some of the other packaged food companies that are out there, um, like a Tyson, which is expanding its raised and rooted product line or Kellogg with its Morning Stars, you know, uh, Morning Star Farms. It, it seems a bit more like a conventional food company um, because its its core is based on that Greek yogurt um, where it has very large share. So again, it's just got a, a slightly different profile um, than the other two companies we were talking about, um, but it does have a nice exposure as it enters these new markets uh, to add some growth into its portfolio. So I guess that raises the question too, considering their market leading aspect in the Greek yogurt sector, you know, introducing a plant-based product, does that you know, cannibalize sales? Is there the opportunity that instead of just getting new sales, they're just kind of converting existing users? You know, is there an opportunity that or not opportunity, but is there a threat of that there that perhaps, you know, these growth avenues really aren't so much growth as converting users to a different type of product? Well, there's certainly a little bit of cannibalization. Um, there always is when you're talking about um, a company that goes into a directly adjacent competitive category with its own, you know, core. But um, the the advantage that a Chobani, for example, has is just its massive distribution. Um, and so if you think about it going against, um, say, an Oatly yogurt or, you know, a, you know, one of the other alternative silk yogurt, um, the, the huge distribution that Chobani has makes it much easier for them to put that new product on the shelf um, and either displace or, you know, perhaps underprice some of those other competitive products. So, while you may lose some of your core customers to it, um, you're still keeping your customer altogether. Um, but your pure distribution gives you the opportunity to really bring in more new customers into those alternative products um, than a, a much smaller company might be able to do. And then one of the last questions I want to talk about today, now that we kind of have the backdrop for all three of these companies, um, 
I know Impossible Foods, Beyond Meat, and Notley all have made some kind of splashy food service partnership. And I think that's part of the reason why these brands are becoming so popular is that you're not just seeing them at the supermarket. You're also seeing them in commercials. You know, I think you brought up the Impossible Whopper, which is probably the gold standard for how you get your product out to the masses. But I think Chobani seems to be, I don't want to say they're retail only because I do know that they have a food service component, but they don't seem to have this kind of big time splashy connection. And do you think that's something that would affect their evaluation, kind of hurt them? Or do you think that they have such a strong portfolio already? They already have that name brand recognition. Perhaps they don't need it. I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are to that dynamic. Yeah, it's a it's a great question because um, these these new players do rely so heavily on the food service industry for um, for trial and for brand recognition. Um, and Chobani, as you said, does have some food service operations. It's a vector for some additional growth. But I don't envision there are going to be any big name partnerships, you know, advertising. We're using Chobani yogurt um, or, you know, Chobani products. Um, and that window is probably faded. I think the time for that would have been when Chobani was, you know, all the rage with Greek yogurt and it was an emerging category and there was a lot of interest and people were talking about it. Now that it's a much more established product, there's probably very little appeal to QSR or restaurant partners to to brand something in a big way. Um, but there is a lot, lot, lot of food service um, that relies on just having a good product on hand. And so I think that you could look at this as, you know, as uh, restaurants and schools and hotels reopen, that there is good growth opportunity in food service for Chobani, but I don't think it's ever going to be a flashy part of their business. Um, when it comes to valuation, um, you know, I think you could look at it as potential for growth. Um, the, the benefit they have by not having a huge food service operation right now is that they weren't impacted necessarily very much by the pandemic, um, which we've seen happen to all the other food service operators and the food package companies that serve those food service operators, um, you know, took a big hit. Um, so you could argue that it's really um, a, a growth only opportunity in food service for Chobani. Um, but it, it may have a, a natural limitation on how big of a portion of that business it could actually become and probably isn't enough to meaningfully change the company's overall valuation. Very interesting. Very interesting to hear about. I just have one last question for today. We already referenced that 10% market cap earlier. Um, but with that in mind, I just want to get your perspectives on the plant-based market you know, going forward. And do you think that there's just going to be continued demand for these products? I mean, eventually everything hits a saturation point. So I guess the question is, how close are we to that point at, in the current day? Yeah, so currently, we see there's still a long runway for growth. I don't think we're at the saturation point. I think it'll take another decade before we start to approach the saturation point, um, because that, that, that point is, is going to always be slightly moving. Um, and plant-based does seem to be a trend that is sticky and that will be here and will be staying for quite a while. Um, at Bloomberg Intelligence, our latest forecast for plant-based meat alternatives is to reach $10 billion in 10 years. That's up from about $2 billion in sales in 2020. Um, so, you know, obviously we think that there's a large runway for growth um, and that that will continue to, to, to rise. Um, but that would still put all plant-based meats at only about a 5% penetration of the overall meat market at best, more likely closer to three. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the size of the market will continue to grow. Um, the penetration level 
Um, don't think that it'll ever hit necessarily 10% for plant-based meat. Um, but when you, when you then pull in uh, plant-based dairy and you look at plant-based on an aggregate basis, um, you know, you know, there is the potential to, you know, get to maybe 15% of the total, total market when you take meat and dairy together. But again, we don't think anything like that will happen for at least 10, you know, 10 years. Um, in the next year, uh, in the next couple of years, just specific to dairy, um, we expect that to, to reach about $8 billion over the next few years. That's up from about $4.5 billion in 2020. Um, so, you know, again, plenty of room for growth. Um, but, you know, there was a big uptick in 2020 um, because of the pandemic. We think that the growth rates will slow, but that they'll continue to move on um, and that that ultimately there will be a, a point where the, the saturation level is reached, but it won't happen for quite some time. Well, definitely a lot of interesting things to take a look at over the coming years and just get an idea of where this is all going. Um, I really want to thank you for your time today, Jennifer. We really appreciate your insight. And if someone from our audience wants to learn more about you or Bloomberg Intelligence, where should they go? Um, the best way to connect would be through LinkedIn. Um, and I'm always happy to, to, to engage there and continue a conversation. So I think that brings us to the end of today's session. I'd once again like to thank Mesereau for sponsoring this episode, and I'd like to thank all of you for listening. So please remember to follow, like, and share, as that really helps us extend our reach. So until next time, this is Chris Campbell, signing off. <laughs>